Humanity is growing and connecting. Tomorrow's world needs more energy from more places. But to find our net zero future, we must overcome the natural constraints of many new energy sources. This is the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast, where we look at the energy challenges of modern life and the innovators finding solutions. Join us for a low-carbon, high-energy conversation with your host, Joe Battier. This views of the host are his own and should not be viewed as those of any business, corporation, or government entity. Hello, and welcome to the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast brought to you by AWS Energy. I'm your host, Joe Battier. This is the show where we bring you low-carbon, high-energy stories from the people solving the energy challenges of modern life. I'm here today with Chris Davis, Senior Vice President of Milestone Carbon. Milestone Carbon offers turnkey solutions for permanent geologic carbon sequestration. As a carbon sequestration site operator, Milestone Carbon has a unique perspective on CCS and how to really make these projects work. So I'm excited to welcome Chris to the show today and have a chat about CCS from his perspective. Chris, thank you for joining me on the show today. If you would please share with me and the audience your background and a quick introduction to Milestone Carbon. Great, hi Joe, yeah, pleased to be here. Very excited about the conversation today. So, you know, my my background is very much call it traditional oil and gas upstream, midstream experience. I spent almost two decades with ExxonMobil and really encountered carbon capture and sequestration about midway through through my career and was just totally enamored with both the technology and and the promise that it had for for a lower carbon future. And, um, you know, spent quite a lot of my career overseas and, and, uh, you know, places like Europe, South America and Asia Pacific and you know, when, when you're looking abroad, uh, a lot of these climate um, objectives, they're different in different regions, but there's some common themes that they go throughout. And so, you know, I, I saw the promise and potential for technology like carbon capture to really do something, you know, at a very large scale for, uh, you know, for the globe and to help meet these, these societal uh, objectives and goals. You know, so I joined Milestone Environmental Services first um, about a year ago, uh, really looking to go and and get um, involved with projects that were moving, you know, more quickly. They were a bit smaller scale, lower complexity. And then, you know, in the mid of in the midst of that transition, we decided to stand up Milestone Carbon as the entity that would um, basically be um, the encapsulation company to own, operate different carbon sequestration sites around um, the lower 48. And so Milestone Environmental Services really is an environmental infrastructure company that has been specializing in oil field waste disposal uh, since 2014. And so they have this expertise around taking difficult to inject fluids and safely and reliably disposing of those in the subsurface. And so we have an operating capability, you know, a deep regulatory and engineering capability to, to basically you know, design, build, and operate these facilities. And so when I joined the team, it was with the intent to take those core competencies and expand those in into carbon capture. And so that's what we've been doing for the past almost 14 months. That sounds very exciting. Thank you for the introduction. Now, you're not the first person to be on the show to talk about CCS. I've had several different researchers, nonprofits, and, and other 
large-scale operators on the show. But I think that you are unique in that you are the first one that is solely focused on CCS in this role. And it sounds like that's really even why you got brought on to Milestone Environmental to really take those those core competencies that you stated and apply those to the CCS space. So I'm curious, is there anything specific throughout that whole whole span of time and the career and with your startings with Exxon and where you started to see CCS, why you, I guess, got excited and wanted to make this switch to start pushing CCS forward? Right. Well, I'll tell you, I got involved with CCS on the enhanced oil recovery side of the business to begin with. And so I, I initially saw the promise to take basically to have this this carbon cycle where we're taking carbon you know, out of the atmosphere or from different emission sources and then plowing that back into old reservoirs that could could still produce oil if they had the right, you know, the right recovery mechanisms at play. And so I, I was really fascinated by that. But as you get down the road a bit, you find out, well, you know, some of these emission sources, um, you know, power plants are among some of the largest sources of emissions. And so when you start to get into CCS, you quickly kind of connect with other industries and then how those industries connect with the rest of society. And so you had to find a way to basically deploy technology that could still be competitive in both the oil and gas market, but also potentially in the power market or steel or cement or wherever, you know, the fact, you know, the uh, the industry that you have to be um, pulling the emissions from. So it's really fascinating from that standpoint because it really pulls together some of the most fundamental industries uh, in the world um, to make this work. And the other piece that, that I was really sort of enamored with was we were using technology that's actually been around for a long time. Um, so the, car- the capture of carbon dioxide is, is quite old. Um, the, the earliest, you know, the earliest evidence I've seen is with the Schweppes company in, in Great Britain um, back in the 1800s. And so they were using it for, for beverages and the food and beverage industry for carbonation. And so since then, we've had carbon capture being being used and deployed and developed really for, for food and beverages. And then later in the mid-1900s, are starting to think about how could we use this in the oil and gas industry. And so we've actually pioneered a lot of that technology long ago. And, and so now we're taking those, uh, those ideas and, and bringing them to bear again. And they can be done at scale. Now, what's challenging, though, is that we haven't had a lot of innovation in, say, the last 20 or 30 years at commercial scale. And so now that we're seeing some of the incentives and policy frameworks in place, now we're starting to see a renewed interest in coming back to innovate some of these technologies and bring them from the pilot or sort of the early technology qualification level up to commercial scale. Yeah, I think that's a really good point that you make that these the carbon capture technology has been around for a quite a long time. And the idea of storing that in the subsurface, we've been doing that with EOR for a very long time. And and the idea of a storage project, these are technically feasible. I've had people on who have talked about active projects that are showing the technical feasibility. But the the key focus here is innovation ultimately towards commercial viability because we want to get to a point where we can take that carbon and we can store it and have that those two steps be a viable business model so with that idea and i think it it's it's also important to point out that 
this also needs to grow significantly. I think somebody else pointed out to me that right now we are currently storing 40 megatons per year of CO2. So 40 megatons, but where we need to be in 2050 is at 5.6 gigatons or 5,600 megatons. So from your perspective, focused on operations and focused on CCS as the the sole operation, what challenges are there in growing CCS to those kind of scales in a commercial way? Right. Well, having, you know, the first is really making sure that, that the projects at scale um, have enough economics to go around all the stakeholders. And so I guess it's important that we maybe just back up and talk about some of the important components. When we think about carbon capture, you know, this is really when we're, we're disposing of a waste product that's, that's, you know, that's not creating another economic product to sell. And so it's, it's got to be driven by things like policy or, or tax incentives. And so it's really societies getting together and deciding this is a priority and we're going to create economic incentives for this activity. And so there's only so much of that benefit or that value to go around right now in, in the stage that we're at. And we can talk maybe about what the future could look like. But in the United States, in the lower 48, we really rely heavily on a tax credit that's um, in Section 45Q of the tax code. Most people in this, this industry are pretty familiar with that. There are some other credits that are state specific, but let me just focus on that for a minute. When you think about that, before um, the Inflation Reduction Act, we were looking at for sequestration about $50 a ton to work with. And so we needed to have enough value in that $50 to go around to all the stakeholders. That's the landowners, that's you know to put all of the wells in place, the pipes, and put all the capture facilities in place. And so what you have to quickly think about, well, where are the lowest cost of capture sources? And, and those are actually not the largest emitters. And so it's not a question of volume, it's a question of concentration of carbon dioxide. That's really where you get the lowest cost of capture. It's much easier to, to dehydrate and compress um, very pure carbon dioxide. And there's really not that many sources of emissions that are high purity. It's probably on the order of 100 or 200 million tons per year, megatons per year in the United States, we would estimate. And it's going to come from sources like uh, midstream natural gas processing, where they have um, treating facilities that take CO2 out. It'll also come from ethanol facilities. And then there'll, there'll be some other facilities, maybe connected with hydrogen production at a refinery or whatnot that have pure streams of CO2. Post-Inflation Reduction Act, now we're looking at you know higher tax credits. We have direct pay provisions, which we can kind of discuss more if, if, if we have time. But there's more economics to go around. And so that is going to open up the aperture on the, the emitters that can economically um, install capture facilities and deliver carbon dioxide for sequestration. And so those emitters, we expect to be think, think the big power plants now. So they have more dilute streams of CO2, but very large volumes. And so with the current you know, tax credit that's, that's going to be put in place, um, certain power plants, not all, uh, will will likely fall within the 80, 60 to $85 range in terms of, of capture. And so that's really what we've needed to, to grow this industry. Have we needed enough economics to go around for the stakeholders to encourage and incentivize all those players to come together? Um, so I think we have that now. I think it's very encouraging. Um, we do have technology now that can scale to the billions of tons per year. And the critics, and it's fair to, fair to raise the question, well, why haven't we seen that? And I think what we would say is that we just haven't seen enough 
um, economic policy and consistent incentives and really clarity in the regulatory space for investors to step in and say, yes, we will do this. The technology to do this at scale exists. I think folks who are familiar with this space won't, won't deny that. The, the question really has always been around, do we have regulatory certainty to implement these projects? And do we have sufficient you know, confidence that the economics are going to be there, not just for the next year or two years, but, but these projects are going to be built to last for 10, 20 or, or more years. So that's very exciting to hear about that, the the new incentives with the Inflation Reduction Act and seeing that commercial opportunity now starting to grow. And I think it's exciting to hear that, that when you think about it, the the highest concentration emitters are kind of that almost comparing it to oil and gas, like that's that tier one acreage from a concentration standpoint. That's where you can get cheap and and high concentration resource, that being the CO2, to then re-inject and, and store. And now we're getting to a tier two, tier three kind of opportunity where it would make sense commercially to store that. I really like the point that you made, though, about that 10, 20, sometimes maybe even 30-year timeline. That is going to require long-term investment and longevity of companies and longevity of this this um i guess you could call it the this urgency of climate change and this urgency to decarbonize is there is there anything that that you see because you guys are now making this push you've been at this for 14 months what do you see that is different now that gives you that kind of 10, 20 year timeline assurance versus say five years ago? Yeah, good question. I think the, maybe the first thing that comes to mind is the requirements that, that the SEC has put out there now to start basically calculating and, and, and sharing with the investment uh, community what your emissions are as a company. So corporate emissions, scope one, scope two, so we're starting to see more transparency into carbon intensity of across the board, not just not just hydrocarbon development, but all all public companies. And I think as as we start to see more of those that information being shared with the investment community, I think there's the demands to see progress towards net zero objectives. And, and in some cases, many companies have stated net zero goals by a certain a certain year. I think if, if you're talking with them. In private, many of them would say, listen, we haven't figured it out all the way yet. And some have been even public about that. But they, they're not shying away from putting those goals out there. Um, so what we're trying to do, Milestone, really where we think we can help with industrial de decarbonization is first and foremost, we're identifying the location of these large emitters. We're identifying the locations of favorable geology. I'll call it advantaged pore space because it's the pores of the rocks that we're going to be injecting this carbon dioxide into. The rocks aren't moving. The emitters, you know, are not moving. The existing facilities are going to be there. And so, you know, we're looking at identifying pore space and helping different um, industrial companies understand how does this pore space play into your decarbonization strategy. And it recognizes and understands that, listen, we, it, we understand you're still working through the details of executing on your strategy. 
and that's fine. What we can do for you today is help you have some of the pieces of the puzzle identified now, and we can help you estimate the costs that are going to be you know, associated with delivering carbon dioxide to the lowest cost pore space, the lowest cost geologic formations near your facilities. And so we're spending a lot of our time doing geologic evaluations in locations like the Permian Basin, the U.S. Gulf Coast, the Rocky Mountains, and we've just started getting a little more active in, in the Midwest, um, in the Corn Belt near some of the ethanol facilities. So it's, it's really a, kind of a widespread effort. We're, we're very busy. We recognize, though, that there is still some hesitancy and reluctance on the side of the emitters to commit to some of these projects because they haven't figured it out yet. And that's, that's fine. The piece that we think is important is that we, we move forward on identifying the right, the right formations, the right geology, and then move ahead with the permitting process. Because as we, as we may get, get to here in a moment, the permitting process in the U.S. is still quite lengthy. And so it's not a matter of months. It could be a matter of years to secure a permit for a single well to inject carbon dioxide. And so milestone, we're comfortable that if we see the right signals, we will, we will kind of lean into this and identify the pore space, secure the land and move ahead with the permitting process to prepare for emitters who are going to need that pore space as part of their net zero uh, goals. I like that approach. And, and I, I always love pointing out those opportunities for skill transfer and basically everything you were saying there is talking right to the, the geologist in me, focusing on the poor space, finding the best reservoir. And in this case, the best reservoir for CCS and, but really carbon sequestration side of it and understanding what you're going to be doing to that poor space and and how ultimately you're going to be able to store however much carbon or the maximum amount of carbon that you can put there. So that's very exciting to hear. And I, I, I want to talk about the permitting side a little bit right now because that also goes into this. Have you seen any change or is there anything that that milestone is doing or that you see the the general industry doing to try and expedite that permitting process because ultimately we need to get the carbon in the ground and we can't do that until everything's permitted and we are allowed to start putting it in the ground right yeah absolutely and i think the the first Step and the most meaningful step is for individual states to apply to the EPA for primacy, what's called primacy. And that allows states the ability to, at the, at the state level, review applications for well permits to inject CO2. So they could review and issue permits. There'll be um, class six permits is what's designated for, for kind of commercial carbon sequestration. And why, why that's helpful is that the states don't get to make up their own rules, but the, they need to implement and honor the EPA's framework. But having the local level there, we can interface and they oftentimes have a lot more familiarity with their own geology than, say, you know, members of the EPA who may be regional based. Right. They may be sitting in an office that's in one state, but, but trying to think about geology in another state. So really, I think we're going to be resource constrained. And so primacy is going to help the EPA meet its, its very important objective. I also want to say that, you know, as with, with respect to industry and regulators, we need to have a mutual respect for each other because we, we need each other and both both sides have an important role to play. And so when I speak with members of industry, I also often remind them that we need to honor and respect the role that the regulators, both state and federal, play um, in terms of you know ensuring we have clean air and ensuring we have you know clean, drinkable, safe water for our communities. 
And, and everybody in our industry, if you talk to them individually, nobody's going to disagree with the importance of those objectives. And so we need to try and find ways to help them satisfy those. But the ask that I have for the regulators is that please, please work with industry because it's going to take more, you know, more brain power to sometimes come to a more optimal solution. And I think we can oftentimes get to the objective, meet the objective you are trying to satisfy, and we can probably find, you know, more efficient, cost-effective ways to do that. And so that that would you know help us to maybe sidestep some of the prescriptive um, instructions that we we've, we've received in certain cases for for some of the permitting. With respect to the EPA and Railroad Commission and other state agencies whom we've interacted with, I, I have have had very positive receptions. You know, we're trying to help them. You know, compress their review review time by making full, complete applications. Trying to make sure that we kind of read through um, any commentary that they've issued, so that we make sure we're you know not having to relearn some of the you know some or fall into some of the pitfalls that some other applicants have fallen into. And I know that they really appreciate that. So I really think people's hearts are in the right places. Um, but there's definitely a lot more collaboration that's going to need to happen here, and so we can streamline the uh, the permitting process uh, both at the state and and the federal level. I like that. I think that sounds good and completely agree. Utmost respect for all of those people at the Railroad Commission and EPA and and everything they're doing, because ultimately they are, we are all trying to, we're all on the same team, so to speak, and we're all trying to move, move forward with these processes. Now, one thing I want to jump back to, as we as we are talking about kind of that tier one acreage that you're looking at, finding those easy, almost the best case scenario projects, ultimately we've got a lot of growth to make in the CCS space. And eventually all of those really good poor spaces are going to be filled. Mm -hmm. Basically, eventually we're going to get to the point where we're looking at tier two, tier three kind of acreage, lower quality rock that we still have to try and get CCS into or get carbon into, or potentially maybe some type of technology development. In your role and what y'all are working on, do you see any major innovations that are starting to occur now in the CCS space? More specifically, I think it it's it would be more interesting from the subsurface side, because I I can see a lot coming out of other companies in capturing technology and now we've got all these different direct air mm -hmm. captures, but what about actually getting it and keeping it in the ground? Yeah, I think there's definitely a lot more room to run from an innovation standpoint in the subsurface and the starting point, it may not sound very sexy, but right now what we really need to do is find, you know, more ways to drive efficiency so that we can, you know, scale up the sizes of the wells so that we can think through the completions in a way that we're basically limiting the amount of um, kind of distribution or, or the, the, the plume that's basically spreading out across the formation that we can kind of concentrate the CO2 in locations so we can pack as much CO2 into as many layers of rock as we possibly can. There are still, I would say, very, very large uh, formations that can take billions and billions and billions of tons of carbon dioxide. So I don't, I don't want to make it sound like there is insufficient amounts of of pore space available to put away very meaningful and material amounts of carbon dioxide. We haven't even talked about offshore. Milestone is very much focused on 
onshore formations, lower complexity projects. There are phenomenal companies. You know, my former employer is working on offshore. Others are doing the same thing, and they have the scale and sort of the the skill sets and competencies to do that. So it's it's we need everybody. This is a big global problem, so we really need everybody doing what they're best at and and kind of moving ahead um, in that way. Really, I think what we're trying to do here, it, it's not so much on the innovation side. It's really around. There have been some missteps with CCS. I want to just kind of put it out there. I think we've not seen enough success cases in since the inception of 45Q and tax credits, if we're being honest. And we need to be, I think, open to the criticisms that are out there. So one of my objectives with Milestone is that we need to get more successful projects up and running so that we can show people and demonstrate that these, these don't have to be just projects that are done by a handful of companies that are, you know, multi-billion, multinational um, companies. I worked on very large uh, carbon capture project, the Sleipner project in North Sea, familiar with the Gorgon project out in Australia. You know, a lot of these are very ginormous uh, projects. And so that is going to be important in terms of moving the needle, but it doesn't have to be. We can have smaller projects. We can have a 500,000 ton per year well that has good economics and is taking uh, CO2 emissions from, say, a midstream uh, processing facility and perhaps even a power plant and putting those away in a formation. If you get those, if you can show that that small scale can work, and then you have a number of developers pursuing those smaller scale projects across the U.S., you'll be surprised at how quickly we can scale up when you show something can be done at a much at a much smaller level. That's a really interesting point, the idea of these small scale developments and more smaller operators doing them, because that kind of goes to this whole idea of localization. And when you've got one of the one of the places I think about because they have an active CCS project is Decatur, Illinois. It's one of those areas. My grandma actually lives there. But so I I have experienced the roads and the the just the 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 area. And then to think that you're also storing carbon in the subsurface. And it's not a very large, it's not a very large project. It's I think a million tons a year. But the idea of everywhere where there is some type of large industrial emitter also having a CCS project is is almost it, it feels counterintuitive in some ways. But I think it almost drives home the ability to localize and to generate new industries and new technologies and and new workforce opportunities in almost every single location throughout the U.S. and really throughout the world. Mm. Yeah, when I'm speaking to different conferences, I like to say we need to be thinking big for sure, but we need to start smaller. Thinking big means for me planning for growth. So we need to be planning, thinking about concepts that not only scale, but we could replicate them with ease um, in the areas that we're, that we're working. Yep, absolutely. With that idea, with these the idea of smaller operations, how many operating sites do you have today? So we, for completeness here, we operate class two injection wells today that take oil-filled waste that do sequester carbon, but it's in much smaller quantities than what a traditional CCS well would do. And so with our slurry injection wells, we've calculated about 2 million tons of carbon equivalent that has been injected since we've started in 2014. The kinds of projects that we're looking at for traditional CCS, uh, we have wells in the permitting phase right now, 
And we're designing wells that are in the, call it 500,000 to a million tons per year range. And so that's a good space for us to be in. It allows us to uh, target emitters of, of various sizes, and then we can actually scale those, um, you know, as, as and when that, that's, that's called for. Uh, for us, we're also looking at sites where we're not just going to be putting one well. So we, we lock up or contract for pore space that can accommodate more than one, um, one well. So for us, you know, think in terms of 50 million tons is, is sort of a, an indicative benchmark of a, of a small site for us. Um, but 100 million, even 200 million tons would be a, a you know a fairly uh, good size site for us, and we, we we could definitely accommodate you know multiple power plants for 20 years in uh, in sites of that size. Okay, and I think that's helpful to understand. And for most of these, is that the time frame about a 20 year lifespan is what you project these at? Again, coming from the EMP space, you know, commercially, we think in terms of, of 20 years, um, but we're going to design them for longer than that. And we, we clearly expect them to be um, capable of, of um, post-site closure, being able to secure the CO2 for, for much, much longer than that. And so we're preparing for even after we're done with operations and we've shut in the well, that those facilities will, will be um, you know, high integrity um, no sources for leakages in the future for for many many decades and in, into the future. That sounds good, and, and I I like that answer. Now, one thing that we haven't discussed explicitly, but we've kind of danced around, is the Inflation Reduction Act. Now, we you were saying that it looks what is in the Inflation Reduction Act seems to be opening the market more for CCS and decarbonization efforts. Are there any specific things in there that get you really excited? Anything that that anybody who is talking about CCS but is still hesitant, things that you want to point them to saying, now with this, your project could be profitable? Yes. Uh, the... I'm, I'm still a little bit surprised that we're not seeing more of an association of CCS with the Inflation Reduction Act. Um, I do talk to some in industry that, that are not in CCS per se, but could benefit from CCS and, and still not making that connection. But there are actually some really important changes and enhancements in the bill or in the law that, that are actually going to help uh, take away some restrictions and then open the aperture for more, um, you know, more emitters to, to potentially find an economic solution. So first and foremost is, They've raised the values of these tax credits. So there's a tax credit for, for use of CO2 and enhanced oil recovery operations. And then we also have a higher value for carbon sequestration. Milestone's not involved in any kind of enhanced recovery. We're strictly disposal and sequestration. And so we would be looking to that higher value, that $85 per ton um, tax credit for, for our projects. The other piece, the other important component is one that we call direct pay. And so there's a limited period of time whereby you, you as a company or the, the stakeholders that are involved, whoever's claiming the credit, doesn't necessarily have to have um, taxable income to, to claim the credit and get the, 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 the monetary benefit from, from that credit. And so that, uh, that period is um, it's early in the life of the project. It phases out with some different conditions. But having a direct pay provision is, is going to help more developers actually step into this space to, to execute these projects. And so it's not. It's going to still create a need potentially for tax equity financing 
Um, but it's going to be probably more limited than it otherwise um, would have been. So those are two really important elements. Uh, a third element I'll say is there were some restrictions around you needed to have a certain minimum volume of carbon, carbon emissions before you could qualify for tax credits. And I, I don't fully appreciate why we, why we put those in place, but those have been taken away now. And so that will allow certain facilities um, that have uh, meaningful amounts of emissions, but they were below some of the thresholds before that could then participate in these projects. It's also going to help us when we think about trying to aggregate or amalgamate supply of CO2 into a common well or a common pipeline system to take that CO2 away. So those are all really positive enhancements. Things that, that folks in CCS may not have, have kind of fully familiarized themselves with is really on the power side, there are some nice enhancements for low carbon power production. And I think this is going to be an important, um, you know, kind of space for the industry to crack to really unlock the full potential of CCS for power. And that's this, this idea that the, the need for conventional baseload power is going to continue for many, many years. Renewables are going to continue to play an increasingly important role, but so will natural gas and so will coal for that, for that matter of fact. And so to ensure that they have an opportunity to decarbonize, CCS is going to have to find a way to be deployed with these projects. And I think that's where we're going to start to see a value for low carbon power, for low carbon bilateral agreements. It will start to emerge. That's going to basically allow an industrial off-taker of power to potentially pay a premium to a power generator for low carbon power. With that premium, the economics for power, uh, you know, low carbon power with CCS is going to probably improve in a way that we haven't quite um, understood yet. But I think that that's going to be coming. It's something that I'm, I'm encouraged when I hear some of the dialogues in this space. If you're an industrial um, company with big, you know, electrical uh, demands, your scope to emissions are very large. You will be able to go out and get renewable power purchase agreements to help mitigate some, perhaps all, but for the larger ones, it'll only cover some of your scope to emissions. The rest of your power demand is still going to be coming from these base load sources. And so what do you do? How do you, you know, reduce the carbon intensity? And I think the answer will likely be CCS for many of those facilities going forward. So mm -hmm. I'm really excited to see some of the innovation in the low carbon power space and how that's going to help attract more capital into CCS for power. Yeah, I agree. Me being a, so I also am a geothermal geologist, so I focus on geothermal and I completely agree. Baseload is not dead. Baseload is alive and well, and it is going to continue to make the backbone of, of our energy grid and and low carbon solutions as far as CCS, geothermal, hydro, I think those are all going to be, they're going to end up becoming more and more of that foundation that we need, especially for heavy industries. With that, I want to transition into the final questions that I ask all my guests. That first question being, what is a favorite book of yours that you would recommend? David and Goliath um, by Malcolm Gladwell. Love, love his storytelling, but it really does talk about, you know, how, how the little guy against all odds is somehow able to overcome. I like it. I like the story of David and Goliath. And so I, I will be interested to hear a more in-depth retelling of that story. The, 
the next question I have is, when will we be net zero as a society? Yeah, this one's a, this one's a more difficult question. I, I think it's not going to be before we have some sort of benchmark price for carbon globally. That's a, it's not an uncommon thing that, that people say as far as we need that carbon price or we really need that incentive. I'm curious, what, if you don't mind me asking, what price do you think that that benchmark will ultimately end up having to be? Yeah, so I mean, just sitting where we are today, I guess just a couple of points on that that question. What it, what we don't, what we're unable to forecast right now is how much innovation will drive down those costs in the future. I mean, we can look to technology development in the past and maybe come up with some analogs, but there will be efficiencies in the future. So I think the prices that we would talk about today are not necessarily the prices in the future. But if we look to, you know, I've been to a couple of, of uh, you know places where where people are talking about this. If you look to Europe and the emissions trading system there. You know, it would seem something that's probably um, above $100 a ton seems to be one that is is enough of a signal to capture, you know, probably a very large portion of, of the emission sources that are out there. Certainly a lot of the power plants would fall into the, you know, 100 to $120 a ton space. And I guess the question is, how quickly do we need to see that price signal? So we may not, we have a lot of room to run, I would say, right now with 85. And I think we need to also let innovation take its course and drive down those costs. And I think there'll be there'll be some time to figure out well what's the most economic solution to decarbonize the rest of these sectors? Could it be hydrogen? Could it be ammonia? Could it be that we just need to do CCS, but we need bigger, you know, more lucrative tax credits to help fund that? I think that all remains to be seen, but that's 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 sort of a price level that I, I would anticipate from here. Hmm. All right. So the final question is now you actually get to ask me a question. Yeah, you know, I, I guess I'll ask it and maybe it's rhetorical and, and maybe I'm preaching to the choir here. But, I, you know, when we talk about net zero, do we think it's possible to achieve net zero without producing hydrocarbons? That I, I think that's a good question. And that is a question that we all do need to be asking because there's there's a almost a chicken and egg problem with that idea of do we shoot for the moon and try and solve all of the problems that we have by finding these zero emissions goals or zero emissions technologies and in the same time say okay we've we've got 30 years we're going to invest all of our R&D into low carbon energy and then if we don't get there in 30 years, now we're kind of in trouble because we haven't found the oil and gas that we need to continue to sustain us. And so I guess that's a roundabout way of saying, do we continue to have some investment in oil and gas? Do we continue to make efficiency improvements in the petroleum industry so that we continue to make our hydrocarbons cleaner? while also driving innovation for the low carbon energy that we've got. And I think it I think that the answer is technically yes, we we could get there. We are 
making solutions for for pretty much everything, almost everything that we are using hydrocarbons for. Are we going to do that in the next hundred years? That that's a bigger question, I think. And I think overall, it it is a it is a hard question to answer because I don't think we we won't be able to see the ability to get there until we're very close. But if we think about even even solar power and electricity use in the U.S., technically there are enough there's enough square footage on rooftops in the whole U.S. to easily suffice and power the entire U.S. Now the the demand, the load, and how you actually get that power to where it needs to be and when it needs to be there. Those are all details that that aren't exactly worked out. But technically, we could provide all of the electricity we need today. That doesn't take care of the, the, the cars and transport, but the technical feasibility is there. Now, is that a practical solution? And what is that going to do to the grid? I think those are subsidiary nuances that then need to be figured out if we can see that line of sight or if we can see even the horizon and the idea. I think I'm I'm starting to ramble now. And I think that's the almost the point of your question is that there are so many different levels and so many different thoughts that you can go down on how you get there that it it is a it is a big question and a very very intricately layered question which yeah sorry yeah it, it almost says that it it yeah there may be an answer but it's also like how do you i don't know what's what's the answer to life and and what is the meaning of the universe it's it's almost like those Right. And, and part of asking it is I, I like people to think about in, in some ways it can be easy to describe the destination you know, when you when you arrive. The journey is a little more difficult. And so the answer changes when you think about the journey to get to the destination. And when, when we think about society and how we kind of keep standards of living from being disrupted, disrupted in big ways. Think about you're walking on a train to the front of the train while you're juggling a bunch of balls on roller skates. You know, it's there's a lot happening. And so your focus is is kind of all over the place and you're, you're trying not to, to drop anything or to trip or fall or, or anything like that. And so what I found in, in, in my, my experience in my time um, overseas is that having a diversity of solutions actually pr- provides reliability and security. And so I'm really more of an advocate for when it comes to carbon abatement, we need to look at it like energy. We really need diversity of supply. We need diversity of technology so that, that we are not over-reliant on any one solution because when we are it is too easy for something to be disrupted and you know and our whole world starts to fall apart and we've got you know plenty of recent examples with you know freezes in texas what's happening in the ukraine with russia right now Uh, my last stint in in europe i was actually working in germany while um you know gas was shut off to germany in the winter uh, from a pipeline coming from russia through through ukraine and how it was just there wasn't enough margin really for their, um, you know, for society to really absorb some of that shock. And so you can see how 
um, you know, with without too much disruption, society can really start to suffer. And so mm-hmm. I don't want us to get to a point where people become disenchanted with decarbonization. I think we want this to move forward as a society and we need to give it every chance for success. And so my hope is that we see continued efforts on a diversity of fronts. Uh, you mentioned geothermal. I'm working on CCS. Many people are working hydrogen, ammonia, and other sources. There's electrification, efficiencies, all sorts of exciting stuff. Um, I'm super you know, optimistic that we are going to make real strides here in the next 10 years, uh, and I'm just glad to be, be a part of it. Yep, absolutely. And I, I really like that point of the diversity of solutions, because I think that is, when you start talking about, can we fully get to no hydrocarbons. I think that is a is a daunting thought. But for me, the idea of getting green electrons through geothermal onto the grid, that is something that I can I can see. I can see the line of sight to that. For you, you can see how you get CCS working commercially and how you actually get carbon into the ground. And for those developers working on biofuels, ammonia or hydrogen or something else, they see their line of sight to their end product. And eventually somebody will come in who sees several of these pieces and starts to build cogs that ultimately build the whole machine. And I think it it can be done. But for any one person to think about how, I think that can get daunting, which is where it starts to talk about the diversity, the holistic approach, and, and of course, making sure we, we have a reliable approach the entire time. So I really like those, that idea and the diversity and the, the energy basket idea that you, you present there. Chris, thank you for joining me on the show today. Before we sign off, is there anything else that you'd like to say? No, Joe, thanks for having me. Absolute pleasure to have this conversation. There's there's really, this is just the start of, of these conversations. There's so many more layers that we could peel back eventually. So uh, thank you for doing what you're doing. We need to see kind of more diversity of voices on here too, talking about these, uh, these different spaces. So, so thanks for the time today. Well, thank you, Chris, and thank you, everyone, for joining us on this episode of the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast. If you're enjoying the show, send it to a friend, maybe leave me a review, give me a five-star rating. If you want to hear more great stories from the energy industry and keep up to date with the going-ons, connect with OGGN on LinkedIn and visit OGGN.com. And if you have any questions, comments, corrections, or have a story that you would like to share, send me an email or find me on LinkedIn. And until next time, remember to keep it low carbon and high energy. Join us again next week for another low carbon, high energy story on the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at OGGN.com.